Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're out to take all the time that I would like to take to say something nice about people in the audience that have been special to me through the years and for whom I not only have great respect but great love. We would not have time for the sermon, and that would be a shame because it's more important than my accolades for those to whom I love. I must tell you that uh, Brother Davenport is a good friend of mine. I've known him since he wasn't married. And, uh, <laughs> I was so proud to see him finally get married. No, I'm, I'm only kidding. We used to kid about that a lot. It's good to see Ron and Lee Mosby. We go back. I've known Ron since under the old law, and that is fact. Uh, we've been friends for a long, long time. I appreciate his work. And what a wonderful singing we've had. One of the great joys of life is to offer filial devotions to our Father who is in heaven. And these songs, if we worship Him in accordance with what we're supposed to, have brought Him great honor today, and I think He must be very pleased at what went on. Thank you for participating with such zest and with such dynamics, because they were wonderful to teach and admonish us. Thank you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who, now see, some of you already quit and didn't listen. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Now some of you already stopped listening. Don't do that. We have a tendency when things become familiar to dismiss them by saying unconsciously almost, I already know that. And so, it is generally accepted that familiarity breeds contempt. Now, that's not specifically so in regard to Scripture, but it is a general affirmation that will hold up. Because we sometimes become familiar with certain passages of Scripture, and when those passages are presented, we have a way of turning the switch off, and we just don't hear the whole thing. I'm going to use one such passage tonight, and I would like you to do me the privilege of listening all the way through the passage. It isn't a long passage, and you won't have to do a whole lot, but just listen carefully. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Are you still with me? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, truly furnished unto every good work. That is a significant passage of Scripture for a lot of different reasons. It is absolutely pregnant with all kinds of implications and ramifications. It touches every area of our religion. It's like a concentrated gospel. It's like prayer shampoo. You take a little in your hand, and pour a little water on it, and it springs to life. That's concentration. That passage, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, is a concentrated passage of everything that we need to make sure that we incur the favor of God when we are called upon to quit the walks of men. And so it is a passage of Scripture that uh, deserves our most careful and focused attention. I want us to look at it tonight. When I was in college, 
I took a course in biology. It was a very basic kind of course. And we dissected a frog. I didn't enjoy it. In the first place, I don't like the smell of formaldehyde. It reminds me of death and dying. I don't know why. But we did. We took this little frog, and we opened him up, and we looked at every part of him. We saw his skeletal structure and how the sinews worked together with the muscles and the bones. We saw his little vital organs. We saw his little pea-sized brain. And all of that together makes a frog. And when we put the frog back together again, I had a new appreciation for frogs. I hope that when we dissect this passage of Scripture and put it back together again at the conclusion of this discourse, that you will have a new appreciation for an old passage of Scripture that perhaps you had been dismissing because you already knew it. All Scripture, he said, is inspired of God. That word inspired is an interesting word. It is a word in the Greek that means literally God breathed. Now, I used to say that when I was a very young preacher, and I would say, that Greek word, ladies and gentlemen, means God breathed. And one day I thought to myself, well, what does that have to do with anything? That just shows that you can look it up in a Greek lexicon. That proves nothing. Well, it proves a lot. It proves a whole lot. Let me show you why. When he says all Scripture is God-breathed, what he's saying is that man didn't say it. We have in English certain words that we call sibilant sounds. Sibilant sounds are formed by storing up a little bit of air and then hissing the air out through your tongue, past your lips and gums and teeth. And we make sibilant sounds. They are the soft C's and the S sounds. The word sue, for instance, is a sibilant sound. In fact, so is sibilant. In fact, so is so. In fact, so is sound. Those are all sibilant sounds. Now, do me the favor. You don't have to do this out loud. But say sue without breathing. You can't do it. We have also sounds that we call plosive sounds. If that sounds a little bit like an explosion, there's a reason for it, because that's what it is. A plosive sound is a miniature explosion that expresses a sound that we call a P sound or certain B sounds, and there are other plosive sounds that are less explosive than this plosive sound, but the word peak is a plosive sound. Now, I want you to do this one. Put your hand right there. Now say peak out loud. Feel the little explosion there? You can't, now, now put it back up there again. Say it without breathing. You can't do it. Now listen to me. All speech is formed by inhalation and exhalation. You cannot have speech in the absence of breathing. And so when the Bible says the Word of God is God breathed, what it's saying is that the sibilant sounds that are in it were not first made by man. And it says that the P sounds and the B sounds and all other kinds of sounds to which we could refer were not originated in the mind of man, but were originated in the mind of God. Before Jesus went back to his Father, and just as his death was imminent, he called his apostles together and he said, When, you, when I leave... I'm going to leave you a comforter. And when he's come, he will bring to your remembrance all the things that I've commanded you. 
He says he won't speak of himself. Well, whatever I tell him to speak, he's going to speak. And you will remember things automatically. That is stated for us in John 16, 26, John 14, 26, and John 15, 26. In all of these passages, he speaks to the idea of inspiration. How that God put the plosive sounds, God put the verbiage, God put the nouns and the pronouns, God put the thoughts and the expressions in the mind of chosen men. I called your attention a passage to which we referred this morning. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, nor of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why, Paul? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The inspired record is intended to produce faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So we must understand at the very outset of our lesson that when Paul affirms that the word which he speaks is inspired of God, he means that God said what he wanted said and the apostles wrote it down. So he said, when I came to you, I didn't come with my own stuff. I came with the stuff that I got from God. In verse 9, I have not seen nor ear heard. Now there have entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. Man could not have concocted the means for his salvation no matter how inventive he became, no matter how skilled he became, no matter how wise he became. He could not find nor could he articulate the means for his own salvation. There is no river he could ford. There is no mountain that he could climb. There is nothing that he could do to meritoriously gain his own salvation. And it came from God. God said then that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How be it? We speak wisdom, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God foreordained from the beginning of the earth, which none of the prophets knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But we speak, he said, the wisdom of God. The apostles did not speak their own mind. They spoke the mind of the Father. And they wrote it down in order that we might have an inspired record of what God wants. In the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ is simply saying that we apostles, by the afflatists and prodding of the Holy Spirit, holy men of God, spake as the Spirit gave them utterance, 1 Peter chapter 1. And so Paul is heard to say in Ephesians chapter 3, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you. Stop, please. Look at the word dispensation. 
We have so long used it metonymously that we have forgotten the sense of the, of the word. The word is from dispense. What is dispensed is a dispensation. We look at it as a period of law. It is a period of law. But it's not just a period of time. It's a period of what God said in a certain way. When we speak of the mosaical dispensation, we're speaking of the law that was dispensed called Moses' law. When we speak of the patriarchal law, we're speaking of God giving information by the prophets or heads of families. When we speak of the Christian dispensation, we're speaking of the dispensing of the message by Paul, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and those men who spoke by the utterance of the Holy Spirit. So, Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, if you have heard of my dispensation of grace, dispensing the grace of God, is what they did, my dispensing of the grace of God. He said, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, he said, this is a pointed message. It was given to me, but it was for you. It was given me to you, how that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. It's no longer a mystery, he said. As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ Jesus. Hear what Paul says. He said, I got it from the Holy Spirit. He prodded me and told me what to say and what to write down. And he said, I wrote it down and when you read it, you know exactly what I know about God's Word. That's what he said. So then, here is a set of rules and regulations. No, sir. Here is a set of affirmations of who and what God is and what He expects. It's much more than rules and regulations. It is a dispensation of the grace of God. It is a dispensing of the mercy of God. It is that which God wants us to know about the character of Jesus Christ. Which character? We are charged responsibly to replicate in our lives in order that we might be like Him, not only attitudinally, but in the, in the deeds that we perform on behalf of others as we live here on the earth. And so he says, I wrote it down. So Paul can say with good order, all Scripture is inspired of God. And then he says it's profitable. I like that concept. You know, the Holy Spirit never made any mistakes when it charged the responsibility uh, to the apostles to write down the Word of God. It just didn't make any mistakes. And, and profitable is a word that it intended to use. What if we were coming into Franklin? We got into the airport and we were coming into Franklin. And I saw a big sign over here that said, Wachovia Bank, I guess they're here. And it said, we pay 10% profit. I stopped the car. Boy, that's 10%. Sounds good. And I've got $100. Well, I run over here to the Wachovia Bank and I tell the fellow, I came for my profit. He said, well, uh, Miss Jones, get Mr. Bowman his profit, 10%. She comes back in a minute and she said, uh, could that be under some other name? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't have any other name. He scratches his head a minute and he says, uh, do you mean to tell me that you came for your profit, but you didn't have anything in here? And I said, no, it just said you paid 10%. I came for mine. You know what he'd say, Miss Jones? I wonder if you'd call those people that pick up people like this. 
And the reason is absolutely obvious. We understand that you're not going to get profit until you invest something. Hear what the Spirit says, folks. Bring the book. He said, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. For whom? For those who invest in it and for no others. You can't get any profit out of the Word of God without some, investiga- in front, without some investigation. You can't get any profit from it without investing in the things that it says. You've got to find out what it says. Sure, you're going to have shooting pains down your shoulder. And sure, you're going to be too tired to study, but you have to study anyway. And sure, you may not feel like going to Bible class, but you see the necessity of trying to get the profit that is insured by those who invest in this most wonderful commodity that ever has been presented. There isn't any treasure, ladies and gentlemen. There isn't anything in your dossier. There isn't anything in your portfolio. There isn't anything in your mutual fund, the like of which comes up to near the value of investing in the Word of God. And so we need to understand that the Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake when it said all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. Well, it's profitable for what? He says, for doctrine. For doctrine. Ernest word doctrine has degenerated into what I call a church word, an ecclesiastical term. It deserves no such relegation. Doctrine simply means teaching. In fact, in Matthew 15, 9, Mark 7, 7, the Scripture says that Jesus said, How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Now, we've made that little change because we don't like verbs and nouns to say the same thing. It's meaningless to us. But in the Greek, that word's really the same word. It's just a noun form and a verb form. He says in the Greek, In vain do they worship me, teaching for teaching the commandments of men. It's the same word. Verb form in the first, noun form in the, in the second. So, doctrine is teaching. It's profitable for teaching. About what? When I was just a kid, my Aunt Minnie came to live with us for a little while. My Aunt Minnie was a great big fat woman. She was a very strict disciplinarian. I mean, she taught manners. You didn't fool around at the table. You said thank you and yes ma'am and no ma'am and you bowed and scraped or did whatever you were supposed to do or the peach tree switch would be your destiny. So you were careful. One day she had performed, she was a wonderful cook, which is one of the reasons she was so big. But she had prepared this sumptuous meal for us. It was in the spring of the year and it was warm in the kitchen. We had an oilcloth cloth on the table, you know, and she had prepared this wonderful meal, and we ate this meal, and my, I just ate until I was just really satisfied. And so I just made me a cup out of my hands like this, and I had my elbows up on the table, and I was looking out the window watching. She slapped my hands out from under me, my elbows, and she said, Don't put your elbows on the table. My chin hit the table. It hurt, but that wasn't the worst part. My brothers laughed at me. That was the worst part. I got up from the table, and I looked her straight in the eye, and I said, Ain't many. Can I be excused? And she said, You certainly may. 
And I walked out the back door, and as I went out the back door, I conjured up the worst-looking face you ever saw in your life. I stuck out my tongue about that far, and I contorted my visage until I looked like something out of some horrible horror movie, not understanding that the door there had a glass in it, and the glass had a curtain behind it, which turned the glass into a mirror, and she saw the whole thing. And she was not pleased. She jerked me back in there and switched my legs with a peach tree switch. And then she told me to get out in the yard. I sat down on the stoop of a little concrete porch we had in the back. I had on a leather jacket, knit sleeves with probably a little egg on one of the knit sleeves. And I was propped up on one side, and it looked like God had just spread a huge blue canopy and just taken a half-filled paintbrush and just slung a wisp of clouds across it. And I remember thinking, a dejected, despondent, disappointed little boy of eight or nine years old, looking up at that cloud and thinking for the first time, what is all this about? Who am I anyway? Why me? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Listen, the Word of God answers those most fundamental questions. Now, you may, study method, you may study medicine, and you may study philosophy, and you may study psychiatry, and you may study biology, and you may study a lot of different fields, but you will find no answers to those three fundamental questions anywhere, not in the Encyclopedia Britannica, not in the American Medical Association Journal. You won't find it in the psychiatric books. God answers the question, why am I here, who am I, and where am I going? He does it the simplest kind of way. He implies it all the way through. We may infer it from reading the Bible in a lot of different places. But after Solomon had performed this fantastic experiment by living life with all the gusto you can, by doing everything that life had to offer, he said, let us hear the conclusion to the whole matter. Who am I? Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every act into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad. You know what that says? It says who you are. It says why you're here. And it says where you're going. And you won't find that anywhere else. The Word of God is the inspired Word of God. It teaches us what we need to know. It teaches us what to do about sin. It teaches us what sin is. It teaches us how to have social contacts that are approved by God. It teaches us how to maintain a faith that is productive of the very highest kinds of things. It teaches us the kind of dynamic that we need to persevere in the midst of a culture that is entirely bent on demise and entirely decadent at, at, at the very base of it. It teaches us how to live in those lives. How dare we not consult it? It's the book of life. It's the textbook for who we are. It's the recipe. It's the road map. It's everything we need. The Word of God is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. word reproof, in its verb form, reprove, means to correct. 
to convict, rather. It means to convict. In English, we have this odd way of changing a noun and a verb just by, as one fellow said, putting the emphasis on a different syllable. And we can change convict to convict and make it a verb or a noun. And it does both. The Word of God convicts us of sin. That makes us a convict. But it also convicts us of the existence of Jesus Christ. And it not only convicts us of the assurance that Jesus Christ walked on the earth, that He bled and died and was resurrected the third day, it not only teaches us that, but it teaches us what Jesus wanted us to know about why He came and what He did for us so that we could have salvation. It convicts us of the need for a Savior and then introduces us by conviction to the Savior. Because what is faith? It is conviction of things not seen. So, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. It convicts us of sin. It says, here's what it is. You have caused your demise. You, You have wallowed in a quagmire of filth and decadence. And there's not anything you can do to pluck yourself out of it. And so I'm offering you a way out of the quagmire. I'm offering you a stick to get out of the quicksand of sin. But you have to listen and obey. And if you become convicted of that, after being convicted by it, and you become convicted of the Savior and what He's done for you, then the Word of God is performing its function. All Scripture is inspired of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For correction. It's profitable for correction. Now, let me just stop. Put a little peg there right now. Let me say to you again that it is not profitable for doctrine if you don't invest anything in its doctrine. And it is not profitable for conviction if you get no conviction out of it, if you don't invest something in it. Now, put a little peg again. Profitable for correction. English word correction just simply means to make straight again. To make straight again. You know, the Holy Spirit, I said to you a while ago, uses just simple terms, but it never makes a mistake. It never uses a term out of order. When, when we say correction means to make straight again, and the, and the Greek word here means that same thing, I want to ask you something. Just this, I'm not going to charge you anything for this. If it is so that man is born totally depraved, I want to ask you how he can make straight what never was straight in the first place. It just never does make a mistake. You can't make something straight that never was straight to begin with. He says it was straight to begin with, but I'm giving you something to correct it. So initially, God gives us in His Word a means of correction. A means of correction. Uh, What... Really, what Christianity is all about is trying to keep your vehicle between the ditches. It's making continual, never-ending, little corrective measures that are intended to keep your vehicle going straight again. My wife's father had a serious heart attack. We were called. Normal was at a meeting when the call came, so I called the airlines to find out how quickly we could get somewhere close to Burlington, Oklahoma, which is her home. We at the time lived in Lubbock, Texas. 
Well, there wasn't anything that would get us anyways near to maybe 90 miles at Enid, but it wouldn't be until the next afternoon late, and we could drive in about seven hours, seven and a half. But I suddenly had an idea. We had a fellow in the church who was a deacon who had an airplane, and I called him. He said, you meet me at town and come to the air park at midnight, and we'll go. It was a cold, cold winter night. When we got to the airport on the way, I saw the bank sign. It said 14 degrees. The sky was black. looked like God had made the canopy this time out of something that was just completely black and then had taken something and punctured it just everywhere with little beams of light that showed that he was on the other side of the canopy. And as we lifted up, you could see the man-made lights below, and we were kind of immersed in these little pulsating lights. We flew along, and I watched Larry as he was flying, and he'd fly a little ways, and then he'd take a protractor-looking thing with a little map in his lap, and he'd look at it, and then he'd draw this line, and he'd move something, and then he'd make a little adjustment. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, over here at uh, Childress, Texas, I believe it was, he said, there's an Omni station. I said, what's that? He said, an Omni station is used by the airlines, and it emits a little electronic signal. And I can take my radio and lock onto that electronic signal, and I can tell exactly where I am. He said, the straightest course to where we're going is a straight line. And I said, well, how are we doing? He said, we're about a fourth of a mile off. I said, don't worry about it, man. You can see to eternity. He said, I thought preachers had some sense. He said, don't you understand if we're just about an eighth or a quarter of a mile off right now, by the time we put that line out like it's supposed to go, by the time we're supposed to be there, we'll be 156 miles from the airport. Do you think you can see it from 156 miles? I said, I don't think I can. He said, then perhaps I better correct the course. That's our job, folks. And here's the Omni station. You lock in onto that, and you're going to go straight like you ought to go. You leave that alone, and I'm going to guarantee you you're going to get off course. And sometimes it won't be but about a quarter of a mile, but if you leave it without correcting it, it won't be long until you're 166 miles off course. I've seen it happen far too many times. In fact, I've been a part of it. All Scripture is inspired of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is one of my favorite parts of the passage. Instruction is teaching. Instruction in righteousness. Our English word righteous is a wonderful word. It's what I call a shoved up together word. It was a contraction, I guess, at one time. It originally was two words and a suffix. It was right wiseness. Right Wiseness. Now, the British, they have a real strong affinity for pushing stuff up together and making it very concise. They take cannot and make it can't. They take uh, am not and make it ain't, or one of those. <laughs> but they shoved this word up together. And they kept saying, right, what is this, right, what is this, right, righteousness, and finally it became righteousness. And, and our word wise, ladies and gentlemen, originally meant a way, and you can see the connection between a way and wise or wisdom. 
remember the passage? I believe it's in Luke where the Scripture says the birth of Jesus was on this wise. That means it happened this way. Now then, it gives us instruction in right wayness. It not only tells you how to correct your course, it tells you how to keep your course going. Isn't that wonderful? All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in right wayness. Boy, do we ever need that. You ever go anywhere without a road map? Now, Norma, she does not like to not know where she is. And a while ago, we went out to the Adairs, and she got 90 degrees off course, and she was hard to live with for the whole trip because we were trying to find out. I said, we're going a little bit southwest. She said, how do you know that? I said, I'm looking at that little deal on the mirror up there that says southwest. Well, you need to know where you're going. And you need to know how to get there. And the Word of God is what gives that to you. Now, listen to the end of it. It is really beautiful. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, remember that, and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God, and please hear me carefully, that originally was directed to preachers because he was the man of God, that the man of God might be completely furnished, thoroughly furnished, totally furnished unto the King James says all, the American Standard says every good work. I want to say something to you. There's no superlative for all. I may say, yeah, this may be all. No, Brother Wiley over here says, yeah, but this is all. Her. And, and, and Brother Edmund comes along and he says, that may be all, her, but this is all. Us. No. When you've said all, that's all there is. There ain't any more. And so he says, it thoroughly furnishes the man of God to every good work. To all good works. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that if it's in the Bible, it is a good work, whether you like it or not, whether it's difficult or not, whether somebody else likes it, whether somebody else doesn't like you liking it, doesn't make any difference. It's still a good work. Conversely, if it is not in the Bible, I don't care who votes on it. I don't care what kind of ecclesiastical synod adopts it. It is not a good work because God said it's not. If it's not in the Bible, it's not a good work. And I don't care if churches of Christ do it. It's not a good work. That's the end of that. Now then, let's put the frog back together. Won't take but just a minute. All Scripture is inspired of God. Remember that? What does that mean? God breathed, isn't it? Remember Pete? Not Peter, but Pete. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. Still listening? It's profitable for doctrine. Remember what we talked about? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be completely furnished 
unto every good work. And so what is sufficient for the times in which you live? What is sufficient when they say vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God? What's sufficient for denying the validity of that? What's sufficient for saying, because everybody does it, probably is reason that I don't do it? The Word of God is sufficient for our needs in this ruptured culture. The Word of God is sufficient for our needs in this putrid society. The Word of God is sufficient for our needs in this society devoted to radical subjectivism and radical individualism. This is the Word of God that is profitable for anything that we need. How dare we not invest in it? It pays the greatest dividends of all. Somebody asked me, said, what do you do? I said, I'm a preacher. And preaching the gospel, you don't make a whole lot of money. But the retirement benefits are out of this world. And isn't that the way it is for you? Sure it is. If you're not a Christian, why in the world keeping you? Don't you want to invest in this? It's the only way to get out of this world alive. It's the only thing that really makes any sense, as we pointed out this morning. It's your reasonable service. Why don't you come and give your life to Jesus tonight? Come confess your faith in Him as the Son of God. Bend your will to His will and repent of your sins. Confess with your pledge of allegiance to Him as your mentor, as your Savior, as your God. And be buried with Him in baptism so that you can put off the old man of sin and put on the new man which is renewed in righteousness and holiness. And if you've wandered away, I fail to see why you can't just bar all that and say, I'm not going to do that anymore and come back to the Lord. Are you ready to meet your Maker? Won't you come as we stand and sing? Not the invitation, nor prepare to be my God.